Welcome to A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar, a podcast with relatively well-informed and irreverent musings on religion, news, and society. And now, for your hosts, Rabbi Asher Lopatin and John Geringer. Hey, Asher. Hey, John. How you doing? It's been a while. Yeah, you know, lots of crazy things. Actually, in Detroit, all sorts of anti-Semitism in a high school and then all sorts of things. A lot on our mind, my mind, has been, first of all, Israel, certainly. And then, like the last week and a half, two weeks, week and a half, there's the banks. And I was talking to a friend who does a lot of investing in Israel with, with venture capital. And, you know, you're reading about people are afraid of Israel. They're taking money out of Israel. Well, then he said, well, I hope the money they take out of Israel, they're not putting in some of these banks in Silicon Valley that are having trouble. I thought that was kind of funny. Like you can't win, like you take it out, you do this and that. But you are, you're a partner in a big firm that does a lot of banking. So you are the man. It's been a week. (laughs) I, I like to joke with people that once every 15 years or so, bank regulatory lawyers are cool. We had we had a good run in, in 2008, and here we are back. Well, I hope you do a slightly better job, John, this time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're trying. I mean, 500 banks failed last time, and here we only had two. That's so amazing. that, ain't, that really ain't bad. That's really good. That's good. It affects, so for our Jewish listeners, there's some Jewish money in these banks. And for our non-Jewish listeners, there's some non-Jewish money in these banks. So everyone suffers. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting confluence of events, right? You had COVID creating inflation, inflation creating the need to put the money somewhere, put money in bonds that were at a low interest rate at the time. Fed decided inflation bad. Let's raise interest rates really quickly, 400 basis points, 4%. Over a very short period of time, those bonds became less valuable And then, of course, some of these banks took on a lot of what are known as uninsured deposits, right? You have deposit insurance up to 250,000. That's sort of the minimum. You can do all sorts of shenanigans to do more than that. But the the bare minimum is 250,000. And shocking to me, some of these companies put in not just a million, not just 100 million, but hundreds of millions sometimes on deposits when theoretically... If the bank failed and it wasn't deemed to be a systemic risk by the regulators, they could have lost everything but 250000 And for about a day and a half over that weekend, I would imagine there were a lot of very scary conversations and a lot of people freshening up their resumes. Oh, my. John, what kind of gift do the ban- these banks give you if you deposit $100 million? I don't know. Monstrous <laughs> toaster, like the biggest toaster on earth, right? <laughs> Gold-plated. <laughs> wow. Can you get miles? Do they get airline miles? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. I'm oh. sure they get a, a lot of other good deals. And, you know, at least Silicon Valley Bank, a lot of them were an exclusivity agreement. So they they couldn't bank elsewhere oh, uh, because it was deemed to be sort of a home for Silicon Valley and startup businesses and the like. And a lot of these places didn't have very many other options. And so this was their option, which is why they put their money in. And the government came in and despite people... Calling it a bailout, there was no taxpayer money in, involved. 
but there was a legal mechanism by which the regulators could call them a systemic risk and therefore increase the deposit insurance limit up to basically infinity for those banks. I mean, ironically, some of the legal changes were invoked by you know Dodd-Frank, which everybody knows the piece of legislation. Barney Frank was a director of Signature Bank, which also failed. Okay. So no, I, I am sorry, John. I love Barney Frank. He was my congressman in Boston, in Newton. And then met him in a, in a New York kosher, it wasn't really a deli, it was like a bagel shop. And I remember seeing him sit down for coffee and I said, hey, you're Barney Frank. You spoke for our Hillel in 1983 or something, 85. Oh my God. So I love Barney Frank. He can do no wrong. I don't care. Let him, let him off. Let him off the hook. I actually have this great picture that I took right after both of them left Congress and were speaking at a banking lock conference or banking conference where I was speaking as well. So I got a picture at the end of the conference. I had like a, a Barney Frank, Dodd Frank sandwich. And I was like in between oh the two of them. You're kidding. You have that. Where is that picture? Oh, yeah, it's digitally. I have it here somewhere. Oh, my God. That is that's impressive. That's impressive. So yeah. you've been working hard with the banks and that's great. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm curious, what is the halachic take on, you know, you can call it moral hazard, I suppose, or you can call it bankruptcy, you know, when people are given a fresh chance to basically wipe away their debts and start fresh. I know there's a lot of halakha around that. Give us the cliff notes. Yeah, well, first of all, in, in a sort of a philosophical way, we understand about tshuva, we understand about forgiveness, and we we celebrate Yom Kippur, Yom Kippurim, when our debts are, you know, wiped out. And even kol nidre is sort of a form of saying, you know, all my commitments are clear. Now, of course, it doesn't work that way. You can't just forget about it. But there is a concept of takanat hashavim, that we're worried that unless you give people, and it certainly comes out with sometimes when if someone sort of steals or something, and we're worried that if you come to take the house and you want to like destroy the whole house, they'll never pay back what they take. So there is an idea that really it came in when they returned to Israel after the Babylonian exile, Takanat Hashavim, again, Lashuv, to return. So there are leniencies made, a balance between we want to give people the opportunity of making up in their lives. And that's really what bankruptcy is. And, and in this case, I think there was a sort of a balance that was struck between allowing people, you know, to really do the necessary work to come back, to come back into the economy to, but not to reward people who are, you know, making bad investments, really. Right. The shareholders were wiped out. No question about that. That went down to zero or close to zero. It was the depositors that are the ones who not bailed out, but basically given the, the benefit, if you will, of deposit insurance, which again is, is an insurance fund paid by the banks, not by the taxpayers. Yeah. Look, I think that's a worthy, that was a worthy compromise and hopefully things are working out and the economy will still grow. And, uh, you know, I hope, I don't know, we're, this is a nonpartisan podcast, but I think Biden deserves a lot of credit. I think not so good, you know, hasn't been to the border yet. I'm not sure what, what's going on there. Hasn't been to that train that's still, they're still leaking chemicals. I don't know. It took a long time, but this one, boom, they were quick. Yeah. And they had to be, they had to stop the potential contagion and especially the risk 
of you know our clients are mainly community and regional banks. And so there's a lot of discussion now of making deposit insurance unlimited. You know, there's like 18 trillion of deposits in the US making all of that insured. We did that temporarily during the Great Recession and then it snapped back. But now there's there's some momentum around making it unlimited. And actually, because of Dodd-Frank, we would have to have it be by Congress, not by the regulators, to make oh, wow. it permanent. Good luck getting Congress to get together on anything these days. Well, we have a very important bank in, in Detroit, Huntington Bank. It's a, it's a Ohio bank, Cleveland, but it's owned by... I don't know, I can say that it's owned by a very nice man. And so <laughs> some discretion, but it's very important to the Jewish community, especially the Haredi community. They're they're really the very nice man who owns it is very generous. I don't know if that's one of your clients and we can strike it from the podcast if it is, but work a little harder, John, to make sure Huntington Bank does well, you know. I, I can neither confirm nor deny whether any particular bank is or is not a client. How's that? <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. So, John, what's ha- what else is happening in the world? Oh, my God. What isn't happening? You know, we are seeing the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has indicted Putin. Yeah. And, his, time. and his minister for adoption, basically, is sort of craned an interesting thing. You know, normally they are not subject to ICC jurisdiction, mm-hmm. not being signatories to it. But what they did, they were smart when Russia invaded the first time, they called up the ICC and said, look, we may not be signatories, but if any war crimes occur on our territory, we'll give you jurisdiction over that. Oh, wow. Russia said that? Not thinking that they were going to do it. They were just waiting for Russia invasion number two, which wound up happening. And here we are. Who who said, who said we'll give, who made that? Ukraine. Ukraine. Ukraine said, basically, we will give the ICC jurisdiction for any war crimes that occur on our territory from now on. Mm-hmm. You know, so that yeah. was after the first Russian invasion, the Ukraine of Crimea, and the Ukrainians were obviously worried about what happened and what is happening now. That turned out to be very prescient on their part. Right. And, right. and so now the ICC has jurisdiction for war crimes war of aggression, you know, crime of aggression, crimes against humanity and genocide, which are the big four categories of the types of crimes that the ICC can convict on. And they picked the low hanging fruit, basically this this program, this monstrous program by which children from Ukraine were kidnapped from Ukraine and given to Russian parents and put in re-education camps. They do it blatantly and don't hide it. So it was a very easy, low hanging fruit. I'm sure people are wondering, so what? Are you ever going to get jurisdiction over Putin? Maybe not, but the only places now he'll really be able to vacation are probably Belarus, North Korea, and China. North Korea has like that resort where like the rich people in North Korea go, I think, like on. Yeah, but that's it. And, And at least it'll hamper his ability to, you know, be part of all these summits around the country for fear of being arrested, right? So that hampers. Right, right. Not to mention the fact that they're probably going to roll out more indictments, which means his henchmen similarly won't be able to go abroad. And then, you know, there are a lot of, we're we're doing some training for some folks in Ukraine and Poland on our Center for National Security Law, folks from the military, FBI, et cetera, how to investigate war crimes. 
And, you know, in, in line with that, we're showing them indictments that were used against the Nazis in the International Military Tribunal and the Nuremberg Military Tribunal after World War II, and how basically all you have to do is erase the names. You don't even have to change some of the towns. <laughs> you can erase the names and put in these Russian names, and you can use those same indictments so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. That's that's so fascinating using Holocaust era law and, and case cases. I want to ask you, John, and you're a child, grandchild survivor, the child survivor, your father, my dad, my dad, yeah, child survivor. You know, there's a uh, politician, the head of the uh, Michigan Republican Party, who slapped something on Twitter that has a picture of the thousands of wedding bands that were taken from people going into Auschwitz, you know, being gassed and yep. a picture of that and saying, basically, this is what's going to happen if you enact gun control laws, gun reform, very much. And the Jewish community, myself included, were outraged that they would, you know, make this sort of equivalence between association, Holocaust right. and gun control laws. And right. Where have you explored where it's we need to use the Holocaust and like in these kind of laws against humanity, crimes against humanity, and where it's offensive to use the Holocaust? Yeah, it, it's an interesting line drawing exercise, right? So today I actually gave a presentation at the law school for their, their Jewish law school association and friends of the association on how the Weimar Republic became Nazi Germany and lessons for today and a lot yeah. of in interesting parallels that you can imagine. Amazing. And, you know, so, you know, I, I think it's a, actually a useful teaching tool to warn people about tyranny by not necessarily getting in their face and talking about modern politics, but you can use politics from the 20s and the 30s in, in a way that doesn't get people's defenses up and yet show them the natural course for where there's these sort of actions lead. So I think there's some utility in using Holocaust education to warn people about, you know, potential bad outcomes today. I, I think that that always, like any other analogy, can be taken too far. You know, we've seen it with our friends who think about Jewish space lasers mm -hmm. and, and the like. And so, yeah, no, I think you're right that people like to use the Holocaust because it's such a powerful metaphor. And it's kind of like obscenity, right? You know, when you yeah. see it and <laughs> you, you know, which side of the line, you know, you get your spidey sense up and it's a hard line to draw. But again, I think most of us know which kind of analogies work. For example, Rwanda, right? They killed yeah. 800,000 people in a month with machetes. Right. Right. You know, I think right. there the analogy is very apt. Mm -hmm. uh, in the analogy you use with the wedding bands and gun control, not apt. Not apt. <laughs> well, I want to take us from the uh, the depths of the Holocaust to a fascinating guest that we're going to have on today that I am such an admirer of, Rabbi Capers Finney. So, John, with your permission. By all means. I am so excited about this next segment because we get to interview a friend, a mentor, a colleague, someone I admire, Rabbi Capers Finney. I've uh, When I was in Chicago, we got together. He spoke in my shul. Uh, he is incredible. He's also, you can find him on YouTube. There's an amazing segment about his synagogue. 
He's the rabbi of Beth Shalom B'nai Zach, an Ethiopian Hebrew congregation. He is the chief rabbi of the International Israelite Board of Rabbis. He's going to explain all this, Rabbi Fanei, that would be great, which has under its auspices the Israelite Academy. And Rabbi Fanei spoke at my installation, Tishibat Chovei Torah, and actually, yes, we talked about, I'd love him to talk about some of the dreams that he has for the future, even though I'm not at the yeshiva anymore, but for the future of a modern Orthodox yeshiva. So I am Joe so thrilled. But John, I don't think you met him when you were in Chicago, in the city, at Anshi Shalom. But Rabbi Fine, can you tell us what your shul's about, what kind of shul it is, and what the International Israelite Board of Rabbis is all about? Absolutely. So thank you so very much for inviting me to participate on the program. I have to tell you that our shul is a really, I think it has the look of what I'm praying that the Jewish community looks like. We have four families from Mexico. We have families from the Philippines. We have families from Africa. We have families from various islands, Jamaica. We have families from Grenada. And so, and, and then we have African-Americans in the congregation. So I believe that our shoe is a microcosm that I'm praying one day the entire Jewish people might look like, might ascribe and might strive to look like. The Eternal says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And so then how can we say, oh, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. And, and, and I'll also say that when we receive the 10 commandments at Mount Sinai, uh -huh. I don't believe anyone could see anyone else. Mm. And, and the Torah tells us, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, not look, O Israel. Mm -hmm. So I'm more interested in hearing what's in people's hearts than I'm than I am seeing what they look like. Well, that's therefore, perfect for our podcast because people can only hear. That's right. That's right. I, I'm so fascinated by your show. The, the people who come from around the world are they. Jews from birth, or have they converted, or or what's the what's the genesis? No pun of of their Jewish involvement. Here, here's it's interesting because some of the Mexican families are Bnei Anusim, hmm. and as Bnei Anusim, they are returning. They're Baal Teshuvah, and the some Africans from Nigeria and from Ghana who have who are Igbo or Igbo yeah and they have Jewish traditions mm -hmm. or Hebraic traditions uh-huh uh, and so therefore they have returned home but each and every member of the congregation has gone through a mikvah amazing uh, particularly or especially with a conservative bet din now personally my bet then consisted of oh my gosh, yeah. conservative rabbis and a modern Orthodox rabbi. 
I'm Rabbi Fanay. I'm going to get so emotional because that was Rabbi Nathaniel Stamfer, right? Absolutely. My, one of my teachers. Oh, blessed memory. What a tzaddik. John, you remember him from Ansh Shalom. Of course. One, wonderful man. One of a kind. And so, and, and Rabbi Stamfer, I asked him, he said, Vernon Kurtz said, well, do you have rabbis that you'd like to be a part of your bet din? I said, well, oh, oh, let me think about it. So I asked Byron Sherwin. Mm -hmm. and he said, absolutely. And I asked Nathaniel Stamper, who was also one of my teachers. And he said, absolutely. <laughs> I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to ask a modern Orthodox rabbi to serve on a bet din with conservative rabbis. They didn't want me to know either. <laughs> <laughs> well, what did you, what did you convert, yes. Rabbi? What did you convert from? How did you mm -hmm. grow up? I can. I was. I actually went through two conversions. I, I went to a conversion through a conversion with an African American congregation. But when I studied more and learned more, I learned that the the it it was not a kosher mikvah, and so therefore. I wanted my family to be engaged in the Jewish community as Jews without equivocation, mm -hmm. without question. Now, far be it at that time, I didn't know. Well, we did go to the to the mikvah on Tui. Oh, yeah. The and, and, and the guy was out there with the frog horn the, oh. and said, oh, no, you're not really Jewish. Okay. Well, it's good to know. It's good to know we're consistent. We haven't changed. It was even way back then. It was a pain. absolutely. Now, now, had you just, now, had you just driven a couple miles east, you could have just jumped in Lake Michigan, right? Yeah, we could have. <laughs> and it was June, so it would have should have been all right. But I'm so glad that they built a mikvah at Beth Hillel, right? And conservative mikvah, and so that's the mikvah that we've been using now for the last. 25 years. So that's incredible. So you, the congregants there who want to be full congregants, they kind of, what do you call it? A conversion or are they an acceptance ceremony? I call it shuba. Wow. Wow. Return. Returning. Returning. You know, I, I'm hoping, and it's a different subject, but I want Israel to let in all the Igboos and Ebos that want to come in. I want to boost that population by a million or two million and let's let them in. And it, do they fall below prayer. the line? Do they fall below the line of the law of return then? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'll tell you this. There is a community that all of the community from Uganda went through oh, a yeah. conservative conversion. The spiritual leader. Rabbi Gershom Suzumu mm -hmm. graduated and was ordained at Ziegler Institute in California. And they're having enormous problems yeah. with being accepted in the state of Israel. Yeah. And that, that hurts. Be because of their race or because of that, the well, the, I, of conversion? I, I, they're saying that it, it, they're saying a lot of different things. They're saying a lot of different things. So I'm I'm not going to speak for <laughs> the authorities in Israel. Fair enough. But it looks like 
to me, it may be because that they are people of African descent. Because it strikes me that, you know, when you when you look at videos of Israel now, when you look at army graduation ceremonies, you, you see a good amount of Ethiopian soldiers. Or, or Absolutely. You see, and I realize there's there's somewhat a distinction drawn between those who came from Ethiopia and from other countries. But it, it, it seems, at least on the face of it, that there is more acceptance of folks from Ethiopia who come from that strand of Judaism, maybe then perhaps other strands. Well, Could that be it? Well, that that's true to to a point, but you must remember historically, the Ethiopian community also had some issues yeah, exactly with the rabbinu. So I'm yeah. I'm I'm not saying any more because I don't want to be banned. <laughs> Will not be banned, and you have our support, the Abu Yudaya community there. We have there are a lot of supporters there, and I just want to say that I don't want to hear anyone talk about demographic challenges in Israel you know, how many Jews, when you're not letting millions of people in that would love to come to Israel, that would love to, if they're not fully Jewish now, they'll do tshuva, they'll return. God, and, and many of them are fully, totally Jewish. I don't want to hear about any demographic issues. But I do want to turn, because I found this very fascinating, that the, the International Israelite Board of Rabbis, so that's made up of rabbis, are, first of all, they've been accepted. The New York Board of Rabbis, I understand, has extended an invitation to have the Israel Board, Internet, Israelite Board of Rabbis as part of them. So they are accepted into the, the, the establishment rabbinate in New York. Is that correct? That is correct. And I'm so thankful for the, the, the welcome that we've received from the rabbi Joe, Joe Potasnik. Fantastic man, and the the president, the former president of the New York board, as well as several other key individuals that are part of the executive. I was really overwhelmed because I believe it may be the largest body of rabbis, certainly in the United States, mm -hmm. and maybe in the world. And it 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 shows. It showed to me their willingness to say that the tent is big enough mm -hmm. to welcome the Israelite community in. And I, I was so humbled by that. R Rabbi, but, let me ask you this. If I were to step foot in your shoal, what would be different? Well, we have drums. We have organs. That's the only difference. And we don't have the same chance that you might have in an Ashkenazi congregation, but all the prayers are the same. And all of the prayers, as a matter of fact, if you came to our shul, you might get a little tired because we start at 1030 and our service is in about 1.45 in the afternoon. Hmm. Wow. Oh, you, you better have a really good kiddish for keeping people down. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The kiddush is so important. <laughs> are there are there different foods than the yucky Ashkenazi stuff that we're just all so sick of? Oh, listen, yes, absolutely. We, I love to filter the fish. That's me. I right. worked in Jewish institutions for many years. I love lox and bagels. That's me. 
I, I eat borscht. That's me. Oh my but God. I don't tell my congregants that you have to eat borscht or love to filter fish or eat lox and bagels to be Jews. <laughs> I love it. I want to know what kind of good food you guys have. It's primarily fish and chicken. Ooh. And the chicken is done in several different manners. And it's, it's fantastic. Chicken and rice are staples. What about chalant? Who's that? Ch what about chalant? Do you have chalant? Is that like, that's that's cool. It's okay. No, no. chalant. Okay, never. But no, no, but, no. I, I've only had that twice in my life. I was uh, in a Orthodox shul down in Florida. And, and, and I, what is this? It's the gift that keeps on giving, is what it is. <laughs> Now, so it's funny, you once told me that in your congregation, even though, do, do men and women sit separate in your congregation? Yes, they sit separate, although I asked if we could, if they wanted to sit families together, mm -hmm. and they said, my, the women in the congregation said, why should we change our tradition? Wow, love it. <laughs> you, you, all right, we, we, we understand you want to be egalitarian, but... We can come up from this side of the room just as easy as we can come up from the other side of the room. So we can be egalitarian, but we want to maintain our tradition of separate seating. Wow. Wow. Amazing. But are, are your chants on the Torah any different? The cantillation, how you read a Torah? Oh, yeah. The we don't really have a cantillation. We didn't learn it. We didn't, weren't taught it in our, in our institution. And But people are masters at reading Torah, and oh. I I would say, uh, aside from the cantillation of reading the Torah, I would actually put any of our students or young people up against any congregation in reading Torah, and not only reading Torah, but he reading says it Torah better than we do understanding. He says it better, Torah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So you don't have to read Torah every week? You, Pardon? You have other people that can read Torah? Besides oh my yourself? God! Yes, <laughs> we and they, they read. So they just read it as if reading a book. Not there's no chanting at all. No chanting. Yeah. Got it. But it's but we do have a young lady that has studied on online or whatever various chants, particularly Ashkenazi chants. And when she comes up to Torah, I said, "Read the chant that you know." And oh, Rabbi, we don't do the chant. I said. Fine. It, it doesn't matter. Teach us. That's great. I love seeing Ashkenazi Judaism take hold. I'm excited. Teach us. <laughs> Teach you guys us. are a cult, Asher, that Ashkenazi Jewish thing. I know. I feel Ashkenazim are discriminated against, so I'm glad to hear that. We're making inroads. Have oh. you ever invited your, your famous relative to your shul? Who's Absolutely. That? And who is Tell that? Who that is. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, the former president owes us a visit. So, so how, how are you related to Michelle Obama? She is my cousin, as they say, first cousin once removed. Wow, wow, wow. So that's pretty amazing. Did that get you anywhere? Did you get to the White House with that? Yeah, but I couldn't take the bus, but it did get me to the White House for the Hanukkah party. I was invited for Passover one year. Oh, wow. And I said, we're doing our own Seder. I can't come because we That's have a so community hard. Seder. 
And that was a hot ticket. <laughs> and so we, you know, we did our community Seder and we have done it every year for the last maybe 50 years. And so I just told him I couldn't make it, but we, we made every Hanukkah party, at least we, my wife and I went to maybe at least six. Oh my gosh. Wow. Hanukkah parties wow. at the White House. Oh my God. I, for the record, I got into two. But I also, I met Larry David at one of them. So that, you know. Now, For the record, this is not a competition. <laughs> so I have two questions. One, what's, what's, is Israelite, International Israelite Board of Rabbis, are Black Hebrews part of it? Or is it totally different? It's at, well, let me say this. Let me be very, very clear. Black Hebrew Israelites, Hebrew Israelites have nothing to do with our community. Uh, nothing. Absolutely and unequivocally nothing. Mm -hmm. So the guys that you might see on, on corners in New York or in Washington, D.C. accosting young Jewish people or wherever they may be, they have nothing to do with our community. And I always tell people, this is America. <laughs> People really have the right to call themselves whatever they want to call themselves. Mm -hmm. If they were anywhere else, they might have not have that right. Right. In America, that right exists through the Constitution. And mm -hmm. so I can't tell them what you are not. Right. I can only tell you who I am and who we are. Amazing. Wow. So I, I got a couple more questions. So what do you call your community? And do folks from your community live in the community or they travel from long distances to get to you? They don't live in the community. We have four families that live in the community that actually walk to the shul. Our community members live in Evanston, Illinois. They live in Oswego, Illinois, Aurora, Illinois, well, they could, they Gary, could Indiana. They could drive an hour and a half two hours to get to you not an hour and a half but maybe an hour 15 minutes don't make it so far <laughs> fair enough do you have any congregants in skokie no but we've been to <laughs> synagogues in skokie and visited with them and we've had mem and we've had visitors from skokie visitors from north brook visitors from every jewish community one of my dearest friends is Rabbi Deborah Newman Kamen. Oh yeah. And we had we had before COVID pulpit exchanges every year. Oh nice. We would go up there and they would come down to us. And and also before she re retired and became emeritus, uh, Rabbi Ellen Dreyfus. Oh in the South Suburb. So I, I have good working relationships with a great majority of the rabbis. Now, some of the newer rabbis I don't know as well, but the older, and I don't mean to say older in a <laughs> derogatory term, but the, older, but the older folks I know, and they know me, and I have, Chicago is a very different animal concerning the Jewish community than any other city I've been to, particularly New York. And I, I will never forget when Ellen Dreyfus was 
her name was put in nomination for president of the Chicago Board of Rabbis, mm -hmm. that it was an Orthodox rabbi, a modern Orthodox rabbi that submitted her name and lifted her name up. Wow, nice. As the next president of the Chicago Board of Rabbis. That's nice. That's good. That, 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 that warmed my heart. So this city is really special. Wow. The city, the Jewish community here is a really special place. And I mean all of them. A dear friend of mine was a Chabad rabbi, Rabbi Philip Leftwitz. You know him? Yeah. How's he doing? He passed away. Oh, he did. I'm sorry. He moved oh. to Jersey. He moved to Jersey. Ah. And he passed away maybe four years ago. I used to wrestle with his kids when they were in yeshiva and brisk in 1985 or something like that. So, Rabbi, how long have you been leading your congregation? I became the spiritual leader in 1991 after the former rabbi passed. He passed away in February of 1991, and I became spiritual leader at that time. We, I worked under him from 1985 until 1981. I was ordained in 1985. And how far back does the shul go? The shul goes back to 1918. Wow. Wow, wow. So I have a controversial question and maybe we'll, we might, this might be the, this might be it. I talked to you years ago, I remember about Louis Farrakhan and you had some interesting insights and you had some relationship with him or something like that. What, and can you just elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I've reached out to Louis Farrakhan through a Christian minister friend of mine when I read that Louis Farrakhan had called Judaism a gutter religion. Right, right. And I was extremely upset and I wanted to meet with him. And so this minister friend of mine, B. Herbert Martin, mm -hmm. I don't know if you know B. Herbert. No. He said, yeah, I know Louis Farrakhan. And so he reached out to Louis and he called me back. He said, he'd like us to come over for dinner. And so we went to Minister Farrakhan's home. And before I actually went in and sat down, I simply asked him the question. So Minister Farrakhan, I, it's alleged that you said that Judaism is a gutter religion. If Judaism is a gutter religion and Christianity and Islam are her daughters, <laughs> if the mother is in the gutter, how far behind can the daughters be? Damn, you're good. <laughs> and he's, oh, no, I never said gutter. Oh, oh, and he went through all kinds of machinations. And, and, and another, in another instance at another meeting, I said, this was back in the 90s. This was at the time when Yasser Arafat and was it Menachem Begin had shook hands at a at a meeting. Oh, it's hot, it's hot David. Me. Yeah, okay. that was ninety three, right? Yeah. Ninety three. It's I said, Minister, if we've never had any 
bloodshed between the Jewish community and the African-American community. And yet Yasser Arafat and Rabin can reach out over Brief. all of the blood that has been spilled on both sides and shake hands. Why can't we, or why can't you and I reach out to the Jewish community? And certain rabbis did. Rabbi Herman Shulman, Rabbi hmm. Robert Marks, and Rabbi Arnold Wolf all went to his home and tried to reason with him. And he was just, I, I think that I think that now would be a good time to reach out to him again because wow. he's much older now. And prayerfully we'll get him on the podcast, John. I know. <laughs> Epic. Well, I it's it's inspiring. I think Rabbi Finney, you know, you're you are someone who is connecting the Jewish community together in such important ways. And the fact that I think it's fascinating that you haven't given up on a Louis Farrakhan and uh... how I don't believe that we can give up on anyone. I always hold out hope for change. How do you change people? I think you change people by demonstrating who you are mm -hmm. and saying to them, I'm willing to accept who you are and what you say, but I want you to understand in a better context who I am as a Jew and who the Jewish people are. Wow. He, he sells himself as the protector of black people. But at this stage in his life, he's much older. If he's not 90, he's approaching 90. And I think and I pray, I believe that everyone can change over time. Mm -hmm. And that where people were 30 years ago is not necessarily where they are today. Medicine has changed over time. We've had so many advances. Originally, doctors used to tell people that had heart attacks to rest. Mm -hmm. And then they realized they were resting them to death because the heart is a muscle and that muscle has to be exercised. Mm -hmm. So even some of the individuals who are part of white nationalist groups, I think the Jewish community is not doing enough to engage with them. It's wow. not about having full page ads in the New York Times. It's about engagement. Wow. It's about confronting them. Mm -hmm. It's about, I want to talk to you. I want to, I want to see the genesis. What's the genesis of your hatred? Mm. Right, right. Well, and I'm having dinner tomorrow night with the former spokesperson for the Oath Keeper. So put a check in my box. <laughs> You're good. Well, look, this is unbelievable. Thank you. I 
You've been inspiring for so many decades. And I'm I'm in Detroit, which is a great Jewish community, also amazing. But uh, you know, but you I'm, heard him. Ours is better. <laughs> well, well, look, that's uh, that's special. And and I look forward to connecting not just on this podcast, but connecting more in person, Rabbi Finney. From my perspective, it it was a real honor. I've heard so much about you over the years growing up, and I'm finally so glad to have met you. It's an honor to meet with you as well, John. So are you still in Chicago? Yeah, I'm up in Deerfield. Are you in Deerfield? Oh, that's a a slip. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot. That's good. You hear that, John? (laughs) That's really a slip. But <laughs> if if you happen to be in the city, look us up. Yeah, and six hundred one South Kedzie Avenue. Okay, I, I we'll do. all let's meet, up at, let's meet up at Milts. It's on me. Oh, it's on absolutely. Me. Okay, absolutely love it. <laughs> okay, well, early Chag Sameach and a wonderful Pesach. Uh, thank you so very much, Gamata, and blessings to you and your family, and praying that the eternal blesses, keeps, and sustain both of you in every endeavor that you are pursuing in Detroit and here in Deerfield. So God bless, peace, and blessings to you both. Amen. You're the same. You. Deeply appreciate it. Wow, John, isn't he incredible? I can't wait to visit that show one of these days. Yeah, there was a good PBS special about it or something on, on, I think, a local PBS station. And, you know, one of the things he told me is that they have so much music there. And, I, you know, traditionally in Orthodox synagogue, there are no musical instruments. And he said, but like, how can he tell his congregants when they're reading about praise the Lord with cymbals, praise the Lord with drums, praise the Lord, you know, and nothing. So it's interesting. Luckily, we say it in Hebrew and most people don't understand it and it's okay. <laughs> Remind people why we had to drop our instruments because I get together just in the last few weeks, I've gotten together with my junior high school band. I'm about to get together with my law school band and I got together with some dudes in the neighborhood. So I've been doing a lot of music over the last few weeks. Tell us why we can't in shul. Well, it, it according for Shabbat, really it's about Shabbat and holidays. The rabbis were worried Extensibly, they said, because it might break and you'll fix it. And there's a power <laughs> provision about fixing instruments, fixing anything really on Shabbat. But I think a lot of it has to do with to make a contrast with the temple, to know that we, this is not the temple anymore. And we're still, we're mourning for the temple. We realize that our synagogues, even though, you know, reformed synagogues made a big deal about calling them temple or the temple, but right. They're not the great temple in Jerusalem that had musical instruments playing all the time. They're different. I think that might be one of the reasons. And now you on Shabbat, your voice has to make the music. And, you know, some synagogues, when everyone's singing beautifully, Friday night, Kabbalah Shabbat, it can be a beautiful, beautiful service. They do smack, they smack the table, they clap, they do, they, they kind of improvise. So there's kind of a little bit of a drum-ish sound sort of rhythm yeah exactly (laughs) i had a rabbi when i when i was leading services he he would tell me does it do i do full slap on the table three-quarter slap on the table or half slap on the table depending on the crowd that week (laughs) wow 
Well, well, hey, it's yeah. hey, Doc, Passover is right around the corner. We we got to talk about this. I feel like we're running out of time. Well, and maybe maybe next time we'll talk about Asher Lopatin's Seder tips because I know you've got tons of them. And you will compare them. Everyone has their own tradition at the Seder. It'd be really interesting. You know, tonight we're recording this on Rosh Chodesh Nisan on the first of the month of the month of Nisan which is the uh, the first of the months, according to the Torah. So it's like a Rosh Hashanah. But, but it's also in Saudi Arabia, wherever they, they've seen the new moon. So it's also the first night of Ramadan. So I love it when, when I mean, the truth is the months always, uh, pretty much are always the same, the, the Muslim months and the Jewish months. But this is really exciting when we have Pesach coming up and when our Muslim brothers and sisters are celebrating Ramadan. And, and the way it works out, we can go to, a, I'm going to go to a bunch of iftars before Pesach. Iftar is the, the meal that where Muslims break their fast. So maybe I'll get some tips from these iftars for, for the Seder, but, or maybe not. But I think we can take a little bit from everybody. That's all right. But, but I've gotten... Shabbat HaGadol coming yeah. up is, is yeah. the one... Shabbat, where rabbis would traditionally give a sermon, right? Wasn't it the case, like, and I, people are, I probably can't believe this, that there used to be a time where rabbis generally didn't give speeches on Saturday. And it was like, what, twice a year, once a year? Exactly. Shabbat Shuvah, usually, you know, between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And uh, yeah, the Shabbat Hagadol, the great Shabbat, which is right, the one right before Passover. It's also called that because of the, the Haftarah, the prophetic reading talks about the great day, Yom Hagadol, the Hanorah, that is going to be coming, that will be, that will bring about the Messianic era. And also there was some great, there's a great miracle that the Israelites in Egypt were not attacked for taking the sacrifice, the animal that was going to be the Paschal lamb, and the Egyptians worshipped those those animals. There's a was a great miracle that occurred. Everyone froze. The Egyptians froze. Actually, John, I don't. I, I think what I'll do for the high holiday, for not a high holiday, for Shabbat Hagadol, is I'm going to have more sources. So we'll do more learning rather than just a a sermon. And you know, I think, but there is so much to learn and prepare for Pesach. And I always get the OU guide. I get the Colo Los Angeles because this has a list of medications. And the toothpaste that are kosher la pesa. So yeah, you know, if you are OCD, this holiday is for you. Oh my gosh, you love it. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting to see the what is the boundary between cleaning and and actually, it as the pendulum has swung the other way. And in mo, we talk about oh everything's getting more religious and strict, but now people don't foil as much their countertops. They can pour boiling water on them. Or some rabbis say nothing at all, just clean them off. And I think that it's just gotten a lot, a lot, I don't want to say super easy, but easier. You can now kosher, meaning you can um, change a pot from the year to Passover, even if it's Teflon. And for a long time, people didn't want to kosher Teflon. And now that you can kosher Teflon. So and let's let's take a step back. So the, the the notion is cleaning to get rid of something called chametz. Tell us what chametz is. So chametz is any kind of grain, but the, meaning wheat or barley or oats or spelt that is has has risen. So certainly, if there's yeast in it, that means it's leavening. 
But even if it just sat out as a dough for 18 minutes or more, it's considered chametz. Now, today, we don't take that risk at all. We don't, no one needs dough or anything like that, unless you make matzah. And matzah is dough that has been very carefully washed, that it's not, has not sat out for more than 18 minutes, a lot less, and it's thrown into the oven. So many things that we have have a little bit of wheat in it or yeast in it or barley. So it's very restrictive, kind of the products that you can buy. John, are we going to talk about kidney oat also? Why not? So as if it weren't hard enough to work on, to, you know, get rid of all the chametz and not eat any food that has chametz, the European Jews, Ashkenazim, about less than a thousand years ago said, you know, either because like there are little bits of wheat in the rice bins or in the lentil bins, or because rice and lentils can be ground down and they can look like, like grain, like wheat, like flour. So they said, you know, no legumes are permissible, no rice, no beans, those kind of things. They're all prohibited on Passover. So you can't. And so even, even corn syrup, right? That's why sodas, as you would call them, or pop, like I would call them, you know, create special batches where it's a sugar batch and not a corn syrup batch, right? Yeah. So because corn, even though maize, it's American, they didn't have it in Europe, but they can, we still consider corn kidney oat. And even though corn syrup is not really corn itself, but anyway, the great <laughs> thing about that is for our non-Passover observant audience or non-Jewish or not observant, you can get the best kind of Coke that has real sugar and not corn sweetener if it's kosher for Pesach. So it might cost a little bit more, but it's there, it's available. Right, and look for the caps. The caps are usually a different color. And you'll see a little P at the bottom, not P-E-E, hopefully not, <laughs> the letter P on the... <laughs> yeah, I know. And the caps are yellow usually. So but yeah, it's just the letter P, right, right. Right. So, yeah. And, and, you know, it's, but I think that there's something really beautiful about being careful and extra, extra careful about what you, what you use for Pesa and my mother of blessed memory used to really think that one of the ideas is it's a little bit more simplicity. The truth is now there's so many kosher for Pesach products that I don't know if you could really say it's a simple, simple time. Oh, it's insane. Some of the stuff you can get. And I, I always remember, see, I do actually listen to your sermons back in the old days. I, one of the things that stuck with me is th this notion of rising bread being akin to haughtiness yeah yeah so a haughtiness sometimes like just yeah like i'm big and i'm strong and i'm i'm around and rather than sort of you know being modest and low and you know flat and also the idea of being you know not letting things sit out so there's a a, a phrase a mitzvah a good deed that comes to you don't make it like hummus. Don't let it sit. If you have an opportunity of doing something good, do it right now. Don't wait the 18 minutes or the 18 years or whatever it is. Do it right now. And, and that's consistent with the idea of when they were ready to get out of Egypt, boom, let's do it, baby. Let's go. 
I tell Gideon, who's my almost 16-year-old, who's learning to drive, I say, look, stop sign, come to a full stop, start looking out, peeking out, see cars. But when you see there are no cars, go. That's that's such a rabbi driving instruction advice, especially like Friday, you know, 20 minutes before sunset, right? No, I was stopped by by a police officer because we live in a 25 mile per hour zone. I must have been going 27 miles per hour or something like I think. I don't know. But he was very nice. I said, I'm on my way to synagogue. Just gave me a warning. But but it's a little embarrassing because I was picking up Gideon's friend. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. well, one or two minutes more. But luckily, it was a warning. Far Driving hard. while rabbi, right? <laughs> it's hard. It's, it, it's very hard to uh, you know, stick to an ethical... <laughs> You know, I don't honk people in in a in an obnoxious way, but please tell know. me you, you didn't try to smear the cop with a hundred dollar bill in your driver's license. <laughs> no, because <laughs> I, I don't practice criminal law. Right there, you go. Yes, I know. I have you on speed dial, but I but, got a guy. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, Pesach it's it's not easy, but do you like Pesach, uh, John? And 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 does your your wife, your lovely wife, like it? Love it, love it, love it. And next week we'll talk about why I love the Seder, but I also love the movies. Ten Commandments, I can watch that anytime it's on with Edward G. Robinson, Yul Brenner, uh, Charlton Heston, of course. Of course. I, I could watch that a hundred times. That is a classic. And that's, you know, on Easter time. And, you know, I, I wonder, you know, we should watch Lawrence of Arabia for our Muslim friends, for our Muslim <laughs> listeners. For yeah. Ramadan, we should have a, I got to, you know, I'm JCRC, AJC, Jewish Community Relations Council. Maybe we should do a triple header, Ten Commandments, right. uh, Ben-Hur maybe, and, <laughs> and Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, all Levant all the time. Yeah. <laughs> well, John, look, it's, I want to let you get ready more for Pesach to clean the dishwasher and uh, clean the counters and... Uh, We've got a work set out for us, but we have to save room to do a podcast next week on the Seder. So stay Can't tuned. Wait. That's going to be great. Great. Well, take care, John. This is fun. Thanks, Asher. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Rabbi and a Lawyer Walk Into a Bar. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to get our next episode delivered right to you. If you really like us, please consider leaving a review and sharing this with a friend. That would really help our efforts. And finally, to contact us and for more show-related information, please visit our website, rabbilawyerbar.com. Special thanks to our production team, David Stone for the introduction music, Andrew Bauman for the artwork, and I'm Nicholas Tantillo. This podcast is co-produced with Front and Social Studios in Chicago. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Copyrighted material, all rights reserved.